count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of... Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. You have found Daniel Donato's Lost Highway. That lost highway. This is Daniel Donato. We are on episode 47 of the Lost Highway podcast, the podcast of all things cosmic country. One thing I want to talk to you guys about today is something I've been thinking about, um, is uh, which is gratitude. Uh, strategic gratitude, right? Not just the kind of gratitude that like you see written on like the back, like on a bumper sticker of like a back of like a like a Honda Odyssey, but like real gratitude, like not just like be grateful or anything like that, but to actually strategically apply gratitude to all of the bullshit that comes your way in life. Um, like many people in the U.S. right now, they're, uh, our power is out, right? Not here at the Cosmic Country Cottage because the power stays on here, but a lot of my friends don't have power, right? Their entire week's got shifted upside down. Uh, late last year, my grandfather passed away and I think him and my grandmother were together for, I think just under 127 years. And just like most people from the Northeast, when their partner passes, they move to Florida. <laughs> and so my parents took my 10 year old sister to go see my grandmother, to see how she was acclimating to her new life. And she's, she's doing fine. She's, she's hanging in there, which is very admirable. That's what us Donatos do. We're, we're strong people. And, um, my parents come home from Florida and I'm asking my dad, well, how, how, how is it going? He's like, it's weird to see my mom get older. And as he's telling me that, I'm like, holy shit, you're getting older. And then I wrap the night. I go back home to my house. I brush my teeth. I'm looking in the mirror. Wouldn't you know it? I'm getting older too. And so it's like, whoa, you could be scared of this. But you could also just admit that death is perhaps the most successful entity that exists on this planet because 100% out of 100% of everything that has uh, a breath does eventually die. Um, so I think gratitude is a, is a strategic thing. There's this concept that's known as conditional happiness, uh, which is the idea that you're going to be happy when you achieve something and you shouldn't be happy in the present moment. But if you actually look at it, if you were to try to be happy in the present moment, it's going to make the eventual journey to whatever it is that will make you happy that much better and that much more efficient and that much more aware. And I think a way to be aware and to be in the present moment is to apply gratitude because gratitude actually forces you to look at the thing that is right in front of you as opposed to conditional happiness, which is kind of like a mirage in the desert. It allows you to see something that might not be there yet. And there is strategic soundness to that, right? To manifesting things and, and, and visualizing things, right? Um, not like a parking spot at Kohl's, but just like visualizing things that are rational. And it's like, I think gratitude is actually kind of like a trick in the simulation where you can force yourself to be present. How can I be happy about the thing that is happening right now? Well, I have to first be aware of what is happening right now to decide if I can be happy about it or if I, if I am stressed about it, right? Things like that. And so um, everyone's going to die. And I think it's all good. And I think if you can try to find gratitude in, in the moments when you are scared, when you're annoyed, when you're jealous, or even when things are going good, all the better. All of those things are less than the person who has the most amount of awareness in the present moment. Having awareness of the present moment has to be the most strong abstract muscle a human can develop. 
And a great way to start lifting the weight to get to that muscle, I think, is practicing gratitude. So stay patient, stay persistent, stay positive. I'm doing the same thing with you all, my friends. Stay grateful and stay cosmic. So I'm 12 years old when I first start guitar, and my dad brings some CDs into my room, and the only one that I really remember was American Beauty. The album art killed me. And he, he puts it into the CD player that I had in my room at the time because CDs were the thing. And he skips to Friend of the Devil, and he goes, this is the one that'll take you places. And then he just said, close your eyes and listen to it all the way through and don't open your eyes until it's done. And that was the first time I ever listened to a song with my eyes closed trying to just get into the song. And ever since, that song has been the most transportative uh, asset that I have in my life. I listen to it all the time. Uh, it's been my lighthouse for me. It's come on in very weird, um, <laughs> ironic places at various points in time uh, since uh, the, over the decade that I've been listening to it. And um, fast forward a couple years, uh, American Beauty and Working Man's Dead are going to be 50 years old, right? And so the Grateful Dead starts a podcast called the Grateful Dead Cast, and they hire the MVP, Jesse Jarno, to bring light and life and all kinds of obscure concepts to life that you would not have thought of before that are making the history of these songs. So they do an episode dedicated to each song on both their albums respectively. And on the Friend of the Devil episode, five minutes in, Jesse goes, Friend of the Devil is the cosmic country moment for the Grateful Dead, something along those lines. And I'm running, it's like 7.30 in the morning, and I hear this on my Beats 3 headphones, I almost topple over in ironic astonishment. I couldn't believe it. I've had this cosmic relationship with this song for over 10 years. I listen to it almost every day. It's my alarm in the morning. And then an individual who's writing, I already respect from his books like Heads and other articles that he's written and published online. He's saying that Friend of the Devil is the cosmic country moment. And I'm kind of in this phase right now where I'm on a mission to, on a cosmic country mission to share with what that is in the world, but also discovering what it is and discovering who I am, what my sound and my voice is. And so it was all very heavy for me and I had to process it. And I had to do so by asking him to come onto the podcast and get his opinion on what cosmic country is, um, what his experience was like gathering all this information for the Grateful Dead cast and his overall approach and philosophy to interpreting music in general. And all of it's very fascinating and I cannot wait for you guys to hear it. Truly the one and only Mr. Jesse Jarn. Uh, Jesse, thank you so much for taking the time, my friend. Yeah, thanks for having yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for making this uh, fit into your schedule. I assume you're a pretty uh, busy person uh, these days. You've got a lot going on. You've put out a lot to the world just within even the past year. Um, what are you presently doing at the start of 2021? And how's that looking for you right now? <laughs> it's looking pretty overwhelmed. Um, yeah, same here. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I'm, uh, I don't think that's a unique answer. Um, well, tying up loose ends on a few things, but kind of gearing up to work on a book project. Um, that I've kind of been working on on and off for the last year um, and will be working on for the next two years, uh, which is a history of music told through basically bootlegs and gray area recordings, um, kind of going back to the 19th century and going up through the present. But it, kind of the idea is that if you point at any moment in music history, of recorded music history, um, there's something vital happening that's not being released by record companies. You know, be, maybe they don't know about it, you know, you know, for, for various reasons, but, um, oh, wow. there's always really 
yeah, just every every era of music kind of has that gray area. Um, and they're all interconnected. And it kind of, I think, if you look at them together, it creates a, a bigger history. I'll have a lot more to say once I've finished writing the book. Yeah, I mean, my God. So, I mean, absolutely, right? And, and the funniest thing that I just discovered recently about um, something that is similar to that concept is the connection between uh, reggae music and country music. And how there was a lot of country singles that were very successful here in the States that were being cut down in Jamaica that were being uh, somewhat successful down there, but were never released formally here in the States. Oh, um, fascinating. You know, something, yeah. yeah. Something that I love about, I'm trying to remember exactly the sequence of things, but I know that there were, play, there, there was a, Mu- you know the music being broadcast and being picked up being picked up on radio stations you know if like american singles being broadcast elsewhere there's this great uh tradition of like you know jamaican pop singles um in the early 60s of almost like kind of almost mistranslating uh pop tunes in america you know Amer- american rock tunes and british rock tunes like beatles covers there's this great oh. version of uh for what it's worth by buffalo springfield that's uh called watch this sound which is a, a, a misinterpretation of you know of the lyric yeah. um so yeah it, yeah i love those those international accidental cross pollinations um what are some of the fa- findings like even in a macro sense of of what you've already kind of unveiled um especially in regards to something an area of music that i'm interested in which is like early bluegrass and country music how are you going to do any diving into like the the workings of alan lomax oh yeah for sure for sure yeah oh well i mean that is you know kind of one of the one of the ideas is that there's sort of these secret networks that kind of operate kind of in parallel to the musicians and into the record companies which wait networks how so what are those Networks, (laughs) Networks, yeah, well, <laughs> just like net, networks weird, like, of people, the way people are kind of like connected with each other. Like Alan Lomax's group of friends would be okay. like, you know, so he was sort of connected to Pete Seeger, and he sure. was connected to like you know the Almanac singers, and and right. so when Alan Lomax would record a song and file it with the Library of Congress, sometimes they would put those songs out on like special Library of Congress LPs, yeah. but but just as often. I think he would sort of guide them to songs and say, oh, you should listen to this recording of this, you know, these singers from the Bahamas doing this piece and that, you know, and, and sometimes things would get adapted into into sort of the modern folk repertoire that way. So you have these kind of like secret connectors um, and that plugs totally into the sort of the bluegrass and the country world beyond, way beyond Alan Lomax in the sense that there's this whole huge world of, of radio broadcasts and transcription discs of like that, you know, the Maddox brothers and Rose were like this, you know, group yep. that like, you know, they basically made their following on the radio. It was, you know, they, you know, that was a huge important thing in, in, you know, the, the forties and in forties and fifties and, and before is, is, you know, that's a way to get your music out into, into different regions. Yeah. Um, and, but the bluegrass stuff, and I, this is only, I only know, the surface of this at sure. this point right now, because I'm I'm kind of going chronologically through my research. Okay. Um. So I'm I'm really like deep in the opera era right now, <laughs> but I do know you know the bluegrass era, you know taping, uh, was a thing before before the Grateful Dead allowed taping. Bill Monroe allowed taping. Oh um, come on, great and. There was a whole bluegrass tape trading scene in the fifties and sixties. Actually, Jerry Garcia was part of before oh, he yeah. was in the Dead. He so he was a hard he was a hardcore um, acoustic musician. Oh, um, yeah. He played banjo. He played guitar. 
those were kind of his two. Robert Hunter specials. played stand-up bass. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. He would probably be the first to say he wasn't the best upright bassist. He was maybe the. He was. He became an amazing lyricist, but he was not the first call bassist in the sure. Palo Alto folk scene. <laughs> um, though, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, can't argue with chemistry for that matter. Can't argue um, with chemistry. That's so real. Wow. Um, <laughs> but you know, so but there were the way there was this whole bluegrass scene in in the Bay Area and you know down in the peninsula in Palo Alto where, where Jerry lived, but really kind of um, Berkeley was was kind of the the hub of it. And the way they would keep up to date with music was 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 live tapes. There and they, that was how they they were collecting tapes to learn licks. That Jerry was collecting tapes yeah. to 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 learn how to play banjo. You know, and you know, it's not that he. I'm sure he, I'm positive. I know that he was also appreciating the performances and the aesthetic and the whole picture. But specifically, he was collecting bluegrass recordings as a technical matter. And in the summer of 1964, he and a buddy actually drove cross country uh, from California. To go to the to go to Bean Blossom, which was uh, Bill Monroe's music park in Indiana, oh, yeah. and they, um, tra- you know, they they saw Osborne Brothers shows en route and taped them. They they're they're tapes that Jerry made, where you know he's the he's the you know he's the four fingered hand on the record button, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> and. They uh, actually were you know they were friends with people from this kind of like network of fans, and one of those guys was. Um, is his name is Neil Rosenberg, and he is he is the preeminent scholar of bluegrass um, still. And they stopped at his house and basically hung out in his basement for a few days, um, connecting their uh, wall and sack tape recorders to each other mm-hmm. and copying off, you know, the Osborne Brothers and Bill Monroe recordings. And then it and then at places like Bean Blossom, you could actually get a. Uh, a patch like a board feed or you mm. clip or i think the thing was you you would have a microphone and you could clip it to the actual mic stand on stage and get a stage recording was, was a common here. thing like are you serious i haven't found well i haven't gone looking for them but there are apparently pictures where you, you know pictures of like bluegrass acts on stage where you see like tons of mics clipped off of like the central Mic stand, you know, they're all standing yeah, in a circle around a central mic. Yeah. And you and they would be cool with people literally making an onstage recording around that mic. Oh, how heartwarming is that? How beautiful yeah. and how communal is that? So yeah. it's so, so consumer centric. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so well, yeah, it's or non-consumer in the sense that they were for free exchange, that they weren't for, you know, it's fan fan centric, you know. That, well, yeah. And it's a it's a yeah. In the sense so, of a freemium, in the sense of <laughs> yeah, here, right. Here sure. and you take it and you experiment. You know how infamously Jerry said, Jerry has this incredible way, even just on the guitar too, of saying so much with so little. And you know, after we're done with it, they can take it. You know, as he's right. Well, so the rest of the rest of that quote is him talking about yeah, I used to be a bluegrass taper, and where that's that's where my attitude came from is that I was you know. I, you know, I was into that when the music that I was into. Um, so it's, it's, it all, and, and so that's what I mean by like the network Gosh. of players and, and, and tapers. Cause you know, so Jerry would be, you know, that was one of the, th- that was one of the things that bonded the musicians together. It wasn't just playing music together. It was listening to music together and seeing music together. And these tapes are sort of symbolic of music as a broader network that isn't just, you know, 
somebody on stage and then people in the audience. There are all these other nuanced connections that create a music community. Um, and some of those are people making recordings and trading tapes and carrying the music forward by, by learning it, you know? That, so it was essentially his YouTube. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, I mean, he was a live music head. There's pictures of Garcia at, um, the Berkeley folk festival. It's like oh, him, yeah. him, like literally sitting, watching, uh, uh, the, the Georgia Island sea singers, like in a room, like in like, it's not like a stage. It's like, a he's just, they're in like a conference room or something. And they're performing. And he's just sitting there watching them in the front row. And it's, you know, he's, he's ahead. He was ahead. And <laughs> you just love that shit. Yeah. My God, man. And, and the thing too, that's very crazy is you can go on YouTube, which I'm sure you've already done. And you find, um, I, I don't know if it was from the Berkeley festival that you just mentioned, but you know, Doc Watson's playing the Osborne brothers are playing. And there's a couple tunes where Jerry's picking on some songs, like sitting on top of the world and some standards where it just seems to be like a kind of thrown together group musicians who are just jamming. Interesting. I'm not sure I've heard that one. I mean, there are early recordings of him from that era. Um, and probably they weren't necessarily the, the ones that I've heard weren't necessarily thrown together. They, they were bands that he would, you know, put together and, and rehearse and sort of his, what he would say, what he said about it later was one of the reasons that he sort of fell out of the bluegrass scene was that it required too many good players to, you, you'd have to like really be disciplined and have a lot of disciplined players rehearsing together in order to like get it over, you know, and there just weren't enough players in his world to do that. But there's some great, um, there's some, some super wonderful recordings of, of him playing in that era. I, there is a, a one that I know is uh, him doing sitting on top of the world. Maybe this is the one you're thinking of. It's from an album called, uh, was released on an album called folk time. Mm -hmm. And it was a radio session from Stanford that he did with, um, uh, shoot. I don't remember what he had a gazillion band names, but it's a, a Dobro player. Uh, and then he Garcia is just singing on it. He's not playing any instrument um, what? on the on the one that I'm the one that I'm thinking of. And it's right. a, a, just a stunning. It's like the earliest recording of just his voice as we think of Jerry's voice, like which doesn't really actually come out a lot in that era when he's you know singing in group harmonies or you know you can tell it's him. But this one, it's this specific performance of sitting on top of the world. It's like oh yeah, that's Jerry. Right. And it's like that kind of like um that um that rapid cognition processing of knowing like, oh, that's Jerry. I feel like that really started unveiling um where uh it when the uh, American Beauty and Working Man's Dead era really started coming into fruition. And obviously like tapes of those songs prior to when they were released. But like the earlier collections of like self-titled and Oxomoxoa, if I'm gonna try to get somebody into the dead, I wouldn't say like that's really Jerry's developed voice or even the genesis of where that voice was going to be going, even on the guitar sense as well. Um, what are your thoughts on that on that concept? I'm sure. Yeah, you're, well, you're, are we, are we, are we, well, vocally, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. I, I I think Jerry kind of really to me, the sweet era of Garcia's voice is yeah, basically begins you know, comes into focus during, during that, during those albums. And to me lasts kind of until 77 or so basically actually lasts specifically until new year's 19 December 31st, 1977, after which he, Literally. something changed yeah. in his voice. Um, and the band, the whole, you know, the grateful Dead changed. They became the, the band that was, they became the, it's hard to call them the modern version of the Grateful Dead because the Grateful Dead haven't played a show since 1995. But they became 
to my ear, they became the dead as we think of them touring in stadiums and arenas. Um, in probably, you know, 1971. That's when they, to me, that's when like all the pieces kind of align. That's when the songwriting kicked into gear. That's when um, Garcia kind of found that sweet spot with his voice. That's when just the, the band dynamic happened. But I will say when I'm trying to turn somebody onto the dead, it, d- it depends on who that person is and, when, and what Very the context true. is. Right. Because for me, you know, like Live Dead is just an amazing starting point as just the spun, you know, piece of um, so improvisation, you know, just, for somebody who is coming at the music from a place of um, other improvised music. Right. Sure. You know, you know, which, which is, you know, for me, a lot of arguments or conversations I've had over the years would be like going to, you know, people with people who aren't into that are, are, you know, you know, just shooting, shooting the shit at like jazz shows or something like that and trying to convince them that, that the Grateful Dead are something substantial and worth paying attention to if you like improvised music. So, or experimental music for that matter. So there, there's, in another way, I would argue that that, those five years, 65 to 70, before they found that is like kind of its own peak of Grateful Dead. Um, you know, it's, it's, there are certainly heads that I would play you know, 1968 shows for just to hear just that feral two drummer yep. sound over the top with just Garcia at full shred, full shred, full reverb, full neck pickup. Yeah. All that okay. stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's kind of its own aesthetic. That's, that's the, you know, that's the primal Dick, Dick Lotfula, who's the Grateful Dead's tape archivist called the early era, the prim, primal dead, which kind of lasts in his definition, kind of in, in terms of tapes, like, late 67 into kind of you know 69 ish 70 they're still kind of you know alligator and caution are kind of like the the hallmarks of that era so it it all depends on who i'm trying to you know get into the dead it depends you know that will completely change the first thing that i play them sure you know because there's there's a whole like scene in new york when i moved i moved to new york in 2001 which is crazy um Ooh. Wait, what, of what like month in 2001 uh, Jul- uh june 1st oh my god so you probably still had stuff in boxes when 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 it all went down uh i basically well yeah let's say yes yeah. <laughs> um but uh but then you know there was like this garage rock scene in new york when i moved here where there was a real emphasis on energy and sort of in your face kind of music you know cbg ish um, right yeah and almost almost like a cartoon of cbgb like bands like the mooney suzuki were, were kind of big oh. which is sort of like a, a you know who are you know their name is a reference to can but it's kind of like a it's almost like a an, an amped up level of what they imagined cbs to be in the 70s kind of sure. thing um so that was very much like this like attitude in new york and i knew you know i was seeing I, I wasn't really like a Mooney Suzuki yet, but I was certainly seeing rock shows in that era. And that was like the thing in that era. So like, like then getting, you know, Oh, but listen to this, like early grateful dead of like this, you know, listen to Violi blues from the first album. And it's oh. just like, you know, shreddy feedbacky, yes. noisy, like straight in your face rock. And it's like, Oh, in that, and that is like a, 
you know, the dead are connected to so many musical worlds and that's, that's one of them. The thing that I see so many, cause I am in this weird nebula of music and I grew up here in Nashville. And so mm-hmm. it's like, you see so much of um, a recurring theme of also what I talk about here a lot with other people is so much of an identity uh, endeavor for a pursued identity and trying to find who you really are. And a lot of people fail in that endeavor because you don't realize how hard it is to actually be you. And the pursuit of being you is such a noble and valiant effort that as long as you're creating music and you're coming out with that kind of stride, then you're going to be on point. And you can see that manifest in the early dead, right? Even aesthetically, like Jerry was wearing the rainbow pants, his hair was cut different, he had the gold top Les Paul, the famous uh, San Francisco photo when the entire street is, it's endless heads, right? It's funny to see how they found who they are. And I was always really interested in that. And so how this relates to me wanting to bring you on here was you said what I'm trying to do right now is trying to find out who I am as an artist and trying to be, be honest and, and, and do what I do. As Jerry said, don't be the best at what you do. Be the only one that does what you do. And it's an amazing uh, mantra to kind of repeat to yourself. And the first CD that uh, my father ever played for me, was I was 12 years old. My dad kind of plays guitar, but not really. Like he stopped since I've I've started and it's it's what I do now and in 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 different areas. I play on people's records, I do my own shows and uh etc. And you said uh on the episode for the for the Grateful Dead cast on the Friend of the Devil episode, you said uh, that uh, Friend of the Devil was the Grateful Dead's first uh, cosmic country moment, how that intro of their song was at. And that's what I uh, go as. That's what um, th- this podcast is, the official cosmic country podcast. It's what I, I call my sound. It's what we market our shows as. And so what cosmic country is to me is kind of like me trying to pursue and figure out who I am as an artist. And I'm calling it that all the while this is happening and manifesting. And it was unbelievable for me how the first song I ever heard uh, off American Beauty, my dad skipped a couple tracks and he goes, listen to this one. And he goes, friend of the devil. And that track forever changed my life. I Second, I heard it. I've listened to it every single day since then. I used to just play it on repeat for hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I go back to it all the time. It's my ringtone in the morning. It's like, it's a very special song for me. It's like a monolith of a song. And to hear you call it the cosmic country moment, to me, that just seems so cosmic. Um, it was like, what is this? I was literally jogging in my neighborhood and I stopped running. I couldn't believe Amazing. what I was hearing. Uh, that's my, the song just means the world to me. And to hear you call it that is uh, unbelievable. So I kind of wanted to get your idea on a couple things, right? And I'll ask you those questions as we go on. And again, thank you for your time here. But before we go on to some of those, I want to kind of get your take on what you think cosmic country is yeah sure i mean i guess probably when i said that on the podcast i was a little bit riffing on graham parsons phrase uh cosmic american music which is sort of what he was describing the the fine burrito brothers as in their early days um but i have thought quite i do have devoted quite a bit of time thinking about what you know cosmic american music is or just the ways i'm just fascinated by the ways that there's this whole you know lineage of folk music that goes back infinitely basically right and the concerns of that music when you talk when you think about folk music are probably or you know we think of sort of earthly things i suppose but then there are all these you get these themes 
it's sort of the call of the weird, I guess. And it is I'm sort of borrowing that expression a little bit from Eric Davis, um, who's, a, who's an amazing writer. I don't know. Um, okay. And it's this idea that there's something beyond, you know, that you, that, 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 that this idea that this traditional music can be used to express something that is weirder and more far out than would be commonly expressed within the, the, the scope of the culture in which the music is being made. Um, right. And I get sort of, I, I, I remember, <laughs> um, I, I, well, I, I've written a book about psychedelics, so I guess it shouldn't be that surprising to Heads. or crazy to admit that I've actually taken the psychedelics <laughs> in my life. But um, I remember, you know, one of the times that I, you know, one of my early times I've dosed, I dosed, uh, it was probably in college, thinking about well, what did they, before people knew about acid and something was trippy what word did they use? You know, because oh. it's not like, it's not like suddenly acid appears and then there are things that are trippy. Wow. There was always stuff that was trippy. Yeah. And, and it was, and so that actually, you know, there's, there's, there's whole lineages of that. And you find it in, 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 you do find it in country music and traditional music, you know, you know, probably the words that they use were strange or, 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 or queer or ephemeral mm -hmm. or, or something like that. You know, mm -hmm. you find, you know, so obviously a long history of like weird science fiction and strange tales sure and you know like um uh, uh like hp lovecraft and things like that sure. um yeah. but you also find these weird things in 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 traditional music just like the barest little hints like i do hear just like the phrase lost highway to me is is kind of cosmic it's just it's it's, it's sort of implying the supernatural other world this other place and i guess in terms of traditional music a lot of that does come out of like almost like the gospel tradition or the the, the, the i guess the tradition of christian music some weird stuff and 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 beautiful images but weird images you, you know, i saw not, the light that was yeah or, or or gathering flowers for, for his master for the master's bouquet is such a beautiful image and it's so haunting and it's so Cosmic, really? It's really cosmic. Like yeah. you're talking about a cosmic bouquet, like 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 you're talking <laughs> about the su supernatural flowers, and it's like wow. So yeah. it's there, and it's, it's maybe there. somebody's already done this. Maybe there's you know you know, and there's like outsider country music as well, where you get kind of like these like, like weird recordings of these loners that kind of have their own visions of things that were you know never mainstream. Light in the attic. I'm thinking specifically of a light in the attic thing that they put out a couple of years ago. I don't remember the name the name of the record, but Lonely Sidewalks is is the song that I'm thinking of by Donald Adkins. It's kind of this like Yep. I don't even know if it came out. It might have been like a test pressing that Light in the Attic found. But anyway, but the, just that there's this whole lineage of basically weirdos. Yeah. <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> Let's get there. Or, or 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 heads or something. And and, yeah. and I guess this apply this was kind of like an eye-opening moment for me in terms of discovering music from around the world and not just American folk music, but just that like, oh, right. There are weirdos in Africa and weirdos in New Zealand and weirdos everywhere and making, you know, just like thinking about like, who would I be hanging out with if I happen, you know, like, like, you know, people of my personality type, I assume probably your personality type, like, yeah. you know, who are the heads kind of <laughs> like doing, doing the weird stuff. And that's everywhere. You just have to look for it. And it's mm -hmm. there in old folk music. It's there in music from basically any country in any continent you can find that 
<laughs> um, and, it, you know, so to me, Cosmic Country is kind of like the collision point of like traditional folk music and people who kind of are like have an eye or a third eye, I guess, for for that kind of thing. Wow. My God. That's the that is such a great way to uh to put it, my friend. I mean, so <laughs> wonderfully put. That's great. I like how you said in your book how um uh, who was it? a Humphrey Osmond from ancient uh you, you took the word psychedelic and and he took it and he said that the the Greek interpretation is mind manifesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's there's actually shoot. I'm not I, I don't think I'll probably be able to pull it up um just at this exact second, but there's sure. uh, there's some great correspondence uh with Humphrey Osmond where they're talking about different roots of what became psychedelic where they're kind of like uh, I don't remember what the other ones were but like other things it was like spirit manifesting or consciousness manifesting or it was it was like other greek roots so there's all these basically first drafts of what became psychedelic of 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 like playing with kind of greek suffixes and antonyms i don't know or i don't know what the proper linguistic terms are um but uh but yeah yeah no no it's a modern word it's 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 not you know it, it was uh it's a it's a relatively recent concept. Uh, it's weird because we we use all these mouth sounds that we call words to dictate <laughs> what we assume are very concrete and understood ideas, but really, like they're not. And we can even hear that in uh, how different languages will interpret our songs, uh, coming from the English language, uh, as you mentioned earlier, with someone uh, from Jamaica uh, getting the Buffalo Springfield song, uh, quote unquote, incorrect, and coming out with their own piece of art, which is just as valid. Right, and it's right. weird. And it's like, you kind of get the concept here of like, which I feel like the dead show me all of the time is that everything is open to interpretation. Everything can kind of be turned on its axis and, and be turned around. Um, that's something I very much so like from, from the book heads and, and from what I've read about it so far. Um, and so, I mean, that is a, an, an astounding read for everyone who already hasn't read it. Um, very cool to find out that the term psychedelic is not uh, an old word. It's definitely a modern thing, but it is an old feeling. It's kind of out there. Like, what's going on? Um, I feel like Cosmic does su- summarize that up in a big way. And there's something that is so incredibly cosmic about Working Man's Dead and American Beauty and how it, even just the fact that how close those two projects were written together and 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 how fast they were made and how their approach to the products uh, projects were the antithesis of their initial approaches to their prior five releases. And it's yeah. like, what do you think about that whole phenomenology of the fact, like, I feel like one of the most cosmic concepts, and this is why cosmic country is such a weird thing uh, to me, because I keep under understanding what it means. But I think part of something that is very cosmic is almost letting go and letting the results take care of itself, as Trey Anastasio talks about quite often. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think it's... um you know, get getting out of the way of yourself. I think, I mean, I know that's another concept Trey has talked about before. Um, but yeah, not overthinking things. Just, just sometimes a, a C and a G or is just as good as a A seventh diminished, whatever, you know, like right. the songs on the early, so the grateful, like the early grateful dead albums, there, there's this very garage, like quality garage rock, like quality to some of them. Do you think that's why they played New York so many times in the early 70s? Because they had that chromosome there? I think that... Let's get to that in a a more complicated answer. Um, (laughs) But just how complicated early Grateful Dead songs were. Um, 
like songs like Cosmic Charlie, you know, are kind of like, you know, sort of this easy loping blues song. And then there's not one, but two different bridges with like completely different sets of chord changes and like this kind of leaping vocal part. Um, uh, the, 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 my friends and I tried to learn how to play, um, uh, uh, you don't have to ask. Um, and which is like a really early dead tune. Um, and it's really complicated. It sounds like a garage rock song that's got like four chords, but like each verse is different. The vocal arrangement is different on each. The the that is the, there's, there's like two key changes in the guitar solo. It's like kind of this like weird garage rock that's sort of like it, the thing that that it struck me is like a lot of it is it's like pre Beach well it's not pre Beach Boys but it's pre Good Vibrations mm-hmm. Beach Boys mm-hmm. and it's um. But just the, the the earliest dead, they had this ambition to basically write complex music that was going to bring pop music or their conception of rock or whatever to kind of this next level. And when we hear it now, and it just kind of sounds like psychedelic rock, garage rock. But there is there is this there's ambition in there, and there's right. and um. Some of it, 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 it's, you know, and, and, and what Brian Wilson ended up doing is, you know, these songs like Good Vibrations with all these songs with, you know, through composed and different sections or whatever. And the dead were kind of almost at the edge of that. And then just like veered in a different direction, which way, is way, way in a different direction. And they well, hit it on the head. Though songs did get complicated again because the, the art, they're sort of the arc is. Box of Rain they, is weird. They, Boxer, oh yeah. So Phil was Phil Lesh was kind of the main instigator, probably of, yeah. of the weird chord changes. Box of Rain is weird, but then you know you progress past this period of of kind of American stuff. It gets weird again. It gets weird again until like yeah. Blues for Allah, which is so obviously weird. is pretty far from American aesthetic theme as you can get, at least right. title wise. Well, I guess blues, but anyway. Um. So yeah there's this very complicated part of early dead and you still get whiffs of that on, on, um, working man's dead. Like, um, you know, there's strange changes in Cumberland blues that are not oh, very heavy like, metal. Yeah. That are, they're, you know, that, that weird, like descending thing. There's, there's things, there are parts of them that are not out of traditional music and not out of folk music. And, and that's even the part the cosmic that, fact about Cumberland blues is that that's one of the more country ass songs on that record. And that's written about a Cumberland mine, right. in, in a what I think it's Sweden, Spring Hill, Sweden. Uh, oh, Nova Scotia. There's the the Nova Scotia is the one that in is the one that I was referencing. I think, but I think it's in a town called Spring Hill. Yeah, yeah, the Spring Hill Mine Disaster, which uh, is uh, but, but that's so, the town I'm from in Tennessee. Oh, really? Was that is that where? But I thought the Spring Hill. I thought the Spring Hill Mine Disaster. Um, the Spring Hill Mine Disaster. I thought it was in Nova Scotia. I'm not totally. I can't remember. The I'm just saying. Of, like when I, I can't remember the details of all like, these mine disasters. <laughs> right. I wish. I wish I was. A there's better a lot labor of disaster detail to remember. In just well, there's. Day, it's I like mean, a, labor history that, is pretty grisly. It's like uh, the fact that that you know, growing up in Spring Hill, Tennessee, which is just like so crazy, and that's where Saturn cars are made, which is like uh, the most cosmic car brand. Um, I just don't even know what to make of all these like weird simulation life signs. And when you mentioned that it was from the Nova Scotia mines, I think correctly so on the podcast, yeah. uh, the Grateful Dead cast, I went and looked it up and it's, it's Spring Hill is the name of the city. And yeah. it's like, that is the only city in Tennessee where I uh, really ever lived aside from Nashville. Very, very strange. I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, um, 
forgot what I was forgot where I was. It's going weird to see how they they really hit their stride there for those two records in terms of putting out music that really like would come to really be the genesis of what they would do at a large scale hit wise for the remainder of their career. Because even the simple other songs like Scarlet and Fire. Uh, deal. Those songs are relatively uh, like um, like trickle down economics from the success of Working Man and Americans Dead. They're, granted, they're not Slipknot, they're not Shakedown Street, right? There's other branches on the great tree of life that is Grateful Dead, but there's this kind of timeless American classic legacy that can be included in a lot of their their song smithing. And it seems like the genesis of all that started within those two records, and they they were like on that vibration, and then they got off. Right yeah, though the getting off of it is a lot blurrier than if you just look at the discography of Grateful Dead studio records. Right. It's you know Working Man's Dead, American Beauty, and then in 1973 you get to you know um, in 1973 and 74 you get to Wake of the Flood and From the Mars Hotel, mm-hmm. which are not this. But there's this whole lineage that's sort of like not Grateful Dead studio records where these songs kind of continue. Uh, the next record that get the, the, the next real record that the, gets made out of Garcia Hunter songs is Jerry's solo debut in 1971, which has Sugar Ree and Bird Song and Deal, um, and to me is is actually kind of like it's just Jerry and Bill Kreutzman in the studio together, and to me that's kind of like a cornerstone Dead album. I've actually started some people on that record. It's a great mix of of just straight oh. ahead songwriting and bizarro um, studio experimentation a lot with Jerry on piano. And then you get Bob Weir's ACE, which is another record that's got kind of, that kind of moves in this direction. It's got some tunes with Robert Hunter, but John Perry Barlow wasn't, you know, his stuff is Americana E, but the Weir Barlow pairing, not as quite as timeless as the Garcia Hunter pairing. I think they'd be the first to admit that. Yeah. Um, but then yeah, yeah. you get Europe, but then you get Europe 72, which is kind of like, you know, that's almost like the peak of this songwriting right. in, in terms of, in terms of all this, all these themes of um, just kind of pulling from traditional American music and kind of creating something that sounds like this is a, Jerry said this somewhere. He's like, we were trying to go for something that you could, you can kind of imagine hearing in a jukebox somewhere, like in some, you know, I think he said that about Tennessee jet. You can kind of imagine walking into a bar and hearing that playing in the background. Um, oh, and that, so that, you know, that move, they move away from that with songs like eyes of the world and, and, yeah, and what they get into in 73, but they, um, Robert Hunter really considered the, this, the Europe 72 stuff to be the follow-up to, um, American beauty and working man's dad. And there's actually, he talks about in the later seventies in an interview, he talks about like, Oh yeah, I'm, writing to the record company, I really think they should put out a one-disc version of Europe 72 that only has um, the new songs on it, the songs that were new at the time. Like He considered there to be an album, a single album worth of new material within the three discs of Europe 72 sure. that, he, that he thinks should be highlighted as its own individual album. So he's saying Europe 72 sans 12-minute trucking. Etc. Yeah, basically. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sans sans that side. Or sans right. that disc. <laughs> Which sans, is, sans the third disc. And you know, that's the take, weird take, side. Take, yeah, take away. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, you know, but then the period kind of it goes in and out because I feel like Jerry kind of tapped into it again a little bit with Lazy River Road, which is obviously much later on. It wasn't yep. like he totally, you know, went away from this style of songwriting. It was just that he found other ones. 
It's um, weird because you see it in, 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 you know, of course, another blue chip monolith artist that, of course, had great collaboration with the dead is Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. And the the chart of Bob Dylan, especially for everyone who's not watching, is very much up, down, up, down. It's like a flailing S&P 500. It's just like, <laughs> it's very scary in terms of the success and in terms of almost just the musicality too of what he was going for. You know, we see Bob and Weird Christian era, which yielded some cool results. And then we see, you know, my favorite era of the post-motorcycle accident, Nashville skyline. And you have have like these almost um almost like uh episodes of time in these characters' lives, being Robert Hunter, being Jerry, being uh Bob Dylan, and all these great writers, where they're almost like accompanied by a muse that doesn't quite seem to be an earthly thing. And listening to a lot of recent Bob Weir speaking, um, and reaching out to people who are presently working with Bob as he works on some weird secret project here in Nashville. Um Bob has this one concept that he keeps bringing up, which is like song ideas are not, they're other life forms that are trying to speak through us. And I feel like whatever characters were speaking through those characters that we're talking about now being Jerry and Bob and, and everyone in the dead and Bob Dylan, et cetera. Um, they had this weird period of time where they were like really accompanied by these characters. And then somewhere along the way, the characters like might've gone away or they weren't as pungent. Um, and not to say that those songs aren't as good, but there's certainly like a different phenomenology. There's a different level of fireworks to friend of the devil than there, than there is like, feels like, a, like feel like a stranger or something like that. Right. Althea all day long, you know, not fade away all day long, but there's a different, there's a different uh, resonance there. And it's, re- I think it, the, the, the pinnacle of that can really be explained when Robert Hunter in the same day wrote Ripple. Well, what was it? Ripple broke down Palace into Lay Me Down? Yeah, that's just insane to me. That like, I what? can't believe that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the, yeah, just in one, one burst. Um, yeah, like his first day in London, what just what a yeah, talk about a muse moment of of just having everything aligned. And I think, you know, that one moment is probably pretty symbolic of that whole period for them where they just kept like cranking out tunes just one after another just all kind of touched with the same yeah the same the same inspiration the same you know cut from the same cloth in that way and it's interesting to see that evolve you know because it's not like it's 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 not like they one day turned off that spigot and turned on another one it kind of like sort of flows into each other there are songs you know that are kind of kind of have a little bit of both both in them, um, both sides. Um, so yeah, it's but yeah, this idea of following the muse and sort of tapping in and out of it is interesting. Though you know, obviously that's up for uh, up for debate in some places about who when when the muse is on and off. Then yeah, I'm also a huge huge Dylan dork and been spending a lot of time actually trying to make sense of his '80s stuff, um, which is you know a full of thorns. <laughs> Full of thorns. That's great. It's, that's uh, not the Daniel Lanois era, right? No, it's a little bit later. That's well. I mean, it starts in the eighties. He gets you meet uh, Lanois. That stuff starts in like eighty nine, I think. Oh mercy, and under the red oh, sky, and that man. that stuff, which is amazing. No, I'm in kind of like the dark years, <laughs> you know. But there's oh. still this great, interesting, fascinating stuff, even among you know the 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 dregs of the eighties. There's you know, there's always the muse is always there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, man, circling back to uh, 
to the concept of, of, of cosmic country. What do you think it was about specifically the song friend of the devil that made you say that as opposed to the other country s songs that are, that, that can be found within that birthing period of working man's dad in American beauty. Like specifically like direwolf is pretty cosmic. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I may have said something equivalent during, <laughs> during that episode. <laughs> I think so. Uh, uh, I, I'm I'm sure I, I I call that, but I guess the thing that that made me say cosmic country specifically hmm. with friend of the devil is um just that it's built on that super simple descending uh bass part. It's the major scale, which yeah, you're talking well, about opera. It's like yeah. literally G descending all the way down to the lower G, and it's like so you're going to tell me music has hundreds of years to evolve, but yet we're going to use the same seven notes. In this case, the way that came out songwriting wise was, I th I'm pretty sure that they were just kind of like screwing around and somebody was just kind of like, that's a super easy pattern to land on. And it, you know, I've heard variations of this story with lots of songs, not just friend of the devil. Right. But like somebody say, Oh, that's perfect. Oh man, I'm just tuning up, you yeah. know? And it's just like, I'm just playing like, but you know, it, it, it's a case of just simple being effective. Um, yeah, and it's country at its essence, right? And that, that, and to me, that's what made that's what makes Friend of the Devil such a almost like it, 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 it's it's maybe the most straightforward song in the Dead's repertoire. In turn, if you actually just want to play it as a guitarist, maybe Ripple is probably a little more straightforward even than Friend of the Devil. Similar, but um, too. yeah, yeah, right. But yeah, it's you know somebody. Yeah, it's yeah, it's the and same. It's like yeah, the same tool, the same song. ingredients. Pardon? It's their, it's like their most covered song too, as well. I think, as you stated in the podcast. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I think a lot of that is just because it's it's easy. You know, trucking is not an easy song to just like can't just play trucking. <laughs> you know, a lot of words, <laughs> couple <laughs> sections, weird modulation. You know, right. it's, you can't just play it. Um, but friend of the devil, you kind of can. Um, and I think that's why it's become. Um, a st and you know, and the, the cosmic part is just the you know the storyline of it that you're you know making a deal with the devil, kind of like just it's got a supernatural storyline, and that's you know, and you know, and it. But the stakes of it are so mm. the way that the way that the stakes of it are phrased is mm. so wow, you know, out of Americana and, and traditional stuff, you know, you know the you know, you know, hit out in the cave up in you know up in Reno, all that kind of stuff. But then the the, the the deeper story is obviously not on this earth. If you're making a you're making a deal with the devil, um, so right. that's sort of, and it's not cosmic the way Dark Star crashes is cosmic. You know that's you know cosmic. Yeah, right. yeah, but it's and that's what makes it cosmic country as opposed to just cosmic. Yeah, and, and and you know Dark Star is kind of almost without genre in that way. It's kind of more like a tone poem than a you know certainly not a rock song. There's no there's not even really a trap drum kit on it. Mm. Um, so mm. oh wow yeah. yeah you know the the dark star made the most amount of sense to me when i heard robert hunter speak about it in long strange trip and <laughs> interviewed him i'm like oh i just needed to hear him say it and now it now for some reason it makes total sense but having always heard jerry sing it along with the band playing it you do like kind of you don't get to interpret the words in the same way as you would as if they were just on their own and their own lonesome and they really do just carry over they have a timeless essence it's almost like right. robert hunter was literally just a conduit for these timeless ideas. Well, we didn't really get to talk about this that much in the Working Man's Dead or American Beauty seasons because lyrically, those were really very much drawing on 
on folk themes as we were talking about. But um, you know, yeah. Hunter is also a modernist, and that's very much run on T. S. Eliot. You know, the the shall we go you and I part is is almost straight out of the love song of uh, J. Alfred Prufrock. Um, oh. And so he, Hunter was a huge scholar of, you know, James Joyce and modernist poetry and, and science fiction and, and fantasy novels. So it's, you know, again, that's the cosmic part. That's kind of this like, yeah, that's sort of the same way they're kind of like putting all these other Americana influences into the, into the blender. They're also putting these modernist poetry influences into the blender. And, you know, in the case of, um, Uncle John's band, you know, Eastern European folk music. It's really just pulling from whatever seems appropriate at the moment. Right. The act of first principles is, you, you know, you take an idea that that is its most distilled concept and then bringing it into an arena where that idea might not presently make a lot of sense. And what was it? There's like those, Nor those Scandinavian Norwegian folk female group that Jerry was listening to for the intro of Uncle John's band. Oh, 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 yeah. The, um, Oh, uh, Bulgarian. Bulgarian? Uh, like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right. No, there. there's, there's such a... Right. But, you know, and it's... On the one hand, yeah, totally out there. But it's like... You do see some... So Pete Seeger. There's a video of them performing that song on Pete Seeger's amazing uh, 60s show uh, called Rainbow Quest, which was kind of like a proto-PBS show. I think it might have... I don't remember what stations it actually aired on. But, you know, this is Pete Seeger having an incredible array of musicians into the studio to yep. perform this stuff. And it's a reminder that the folk revival in the sense of the folk revival that started in kind of the forties and fifties and sixties that were sort of led by Alan Lomax and Pete Seeger kind of to rediscover this old music wasn't just old American music. It was really trying to, 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 to crack into, I don't think I'm positive Pete Seeger wouldn't use the word cosmic American music or cosmic any music, but for sure. him, it's sort of about trying to tap into this global spirit of music making. That's it's like, I don't know. I'm going to get the computer methods wrong, but it's like the even it's like the deepest level of code. It's like the bin the binary part of computer, the zeros and ones, I suppose. Right. And the, the soul, you know, and the, the, the way that, you can find that anywhere and 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 you can experience it anywhere from anywhere anyway. right charlie and bill monroe you know you hear charlie's version of rosalie mcfall and it's like charlie monroe you know you're thinking oh my god like where's all this coming from it's like well no clearly from from europe and, and eastern european europe are these uh these melodies coming from but only when it got here to america did the did the instrumentation and that form of a time signature that was combined with blues and those kinds of scales allow for that phrasing and that thing to manifest which creates an american sound which the dead are kind of like the most american thing that's ever been created at that large of a scale I mean, it's, it's like they were kind of picking up on the next theme of that. This, so like a song like Peggio or these mm -hmm. things that were like child ballads would kind of come over from, you know, the Highlands or wherever and get picked up in the Appalachians and updated and changed and turned into kind of these American versions. And the dead are kind of just the next link in that chain. You know, they're they're the ones who are picking mm -hmm. up on those themes and evolving them into the, you know, they're not the only ones. There's lots, you know, that's what the folk arrival was, was lots of people kind of like picking them up, but the dead modernized them. That's what the rock and roll, that was why the rock and roll part of it is so, was so revolutionary. Like, you know, putting a, you know, putting a beat behind cold rain and snow and, you oh, know, wow. carrying that into the net, you know, that's the, that's the thing that kind of like pushes it forward, you know, if you listen you know, to making it so that people, version. pardon? 
You'd be like, you listen to Obrey Ramsey's oh, version God, of the yes. banjo and you're like, oh, like, this is a way different interpretation, both rhythmically and melodically than what the dead are doing. Yeah. Oh, it's just pure haunt, that one. Yeah. It's just, oh my gosh, that's one of my all-time favorite Me recordings too. of anybody doing anything on any instrument <laughs> on any record. <laughs> um, but then somehow you get to the dead playing that in an arena and people are dancing to it, you know? And it's, right. that's, but somehow that sort of that weird mountain spirit is still somehow in there and even if it's not overt and even if it sounds you know if you played the dead's recording for somebody you know for obrey ramsey you know he'd be like the hell is this you know they probably wouldn't hear that thread but the fact that we're talking about it and that it's it's like you know it pulled us in or pulled me in anyway for sure like growing up on american pop music and american rock music and then hearing those things come out through dead songs, it's like you can hear that. You can hear that there's something. Oh yeah, more. You can hear that there's something ancient in there. That's um, the thing. Yeah, ancient, very yeah. old, or timeless, or or you're hearing through to something beyond them, and that's 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 such a powerful thing. And it's you know, it's again, it's not only the dead that did that. You know, oh. lots of you know, but um, but the dead did that. <laughs> The dead did really that. well. Really well. <laughs> they did the best job at kind of uh, transporting you to that plane, and you you hear about it too, like uh, you know, like um, going into Dark Star and then coming into or doing Morning Dew and then you know bringing it back to Stella Blue, or it's like coming in from space and then going into Stella Blue rather, and it's like they do this thing where they really kind of like Virgin Airlines. Like they understand that they're taking you to somewhere and they are bringing you right back down to yeah. this dark and dismal side of Fenario that <laughs> you weren't totally. quite aware of. You're like, you know, in the dark. The black and, the and, black and bloody mire. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, wolf runs. Yeah. But no, for sure. I mean, the dead talked about how their shows had an, a, a narrative to them. Yeah. And, you know, a distinct narrative or, or a, or an intent in, there's intentionality, even if it's not articulated. And even that, if they didn't write all the songs too, that's another thing people get like too big of a, of a, of like a fucking ego about where they have to be like, you have to write all these songs. And it's like, that is not true at all. It's the story that you tell with the songs uh, as you yeah. were, as you were saying about the narrative of a show. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I, I guess my, as my tastes go, I kind of wish parts of the dead show had leaned a little bit less on certain cover songs. There's I I I'm I'm is it the Bobby songs or the Jazz yes. covers? Yeah, no, it's, no, it's, ah. it's weird. I I I ah. love a lot of what that man brings to the Wayful Ledge music and just music in general. I'm not you know I'm not a, a straight. I'm not a, I'm not a straight up Bobby hater by by any means. But I'm there's a lot of times where I I feel like you know I don't need another version of around and around wasn't necessary. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that one. Um, And I'll take one more Saturday night over around and around any day. Right. 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 But that, you know, that's, 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 that's nitpicking in that. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, they, they, they knew what they were doing. And that's, uh, you know, uh, there's a quote from Mickey where he said, you know, we're in the transportation business. Like he, 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 they were, they were conscious of that for sure. We're in the transportation business. That is great. I feel like Bobby was the most transparent in his self-discovery. Like, 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like he was definitely the one that was trying to figure out songwriting the most. And you know, oh, you yeah. Sugar Magnolia too, even though you mentioned uh, very eloquently on that episode of the Grateful Dead cast where the, that was essentially one of Bobby's first Kiefer songs. Yeah. Well, so that's a, a, I mean, a fascinating concept. I'm, you know, I don't know him that well. I don't really know him. I've, you know, I've interviewed him a couple of times. I, I, I'm fascinated by the way he would write songs and then abandon them. You know, because there are songs that that he wrote that, to my ear, could have should have stuck around in in dead set list. You know, and I know, you know, I'm sure he had had musical issues with them. You know, sure. like Black Black Throated Wind, for example, yeah, uh, is one that disappeared for such. It's such a wonderful song, and it disappeared for such a long time. Uh, Weather reports, the the prelude to the Weather Report Suite oh, yeah. is one of my favorite things. Maybe my favorite piece of Weir's music, and that disappeared. You know, after 1974, and didn't the dead never play that again? Rat Dog, I think probably. You know, I'm sure he's played it since since then. Um, and I guess I was always, you know, part, you know, listening to Dead Sets. It was like, I don't really. I, well, Big River is the wrong example because I Ooh. always love when the Grateful Dead play Big River. Me too. But you know, I'd rather hear black throated wind than like me and my uncle <laughs> like in the first uh, like you know their most like, played song too well right exactly yeah. and i guess to me it's like i guess black throated wind feels like like this real artistic expression of something that's original and and like i do see that argument there and i i guess i just don't i don't know we're getting into like the real finer grain of grateful dead set list set listing here um <laughs> it's just a personal preference really it, and and, and probably you know in a stadium or in an arena i'm you know probably if you ask bob me and my uncle and big river and mama tried and all these country songs they kept so. playing which are amazing songs and it's this is not at all a comment on the quality of the songwriting, but those probably get people dancing more than, you know, weather report sweet prelude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Absolutely. Man, oh, man that... he could have done that instead of looks like rain a few times. Anyway. <laughs> See, looks like rain is a fascinating trick because you might think if you're not a person who's very musically inclined, you might think when I paint my masterpiece is about to come in. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, depends which era it looks like rain we're talking. <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm talking yeah. more that nineties. I'm talking. Yeah. Yeah. About for sure. I, I love those, down. the super early versions of look like rain with uh, Jerry, Jerry on pedal steel and uh, Phil doing that like high harmony or um, I, I, I really like that arrangement. Um, I gotta go. <laughs> okay. Hey, Jesse, thank you for the time, my friend. This was fantastic. I really appreciate yeah. it. Hey, thanks for having me, Daniel. This is, it's, I, Definitely giving me like a lot more to to think about in terms of the arc of cosmic country music and how it all how it all fits together, both uh, the cosmic uh, and the country. Damn, I'm sure other countries have cosmic country music too. <laughs> we'll we'll find out. Yeah. Thank you, my friend. All right, I look forward to the book and all everything that you that you write. Thank you so much, man. Just ask y'all if there's someone that you admire, and if they are accessible reach out to them and ask if you can pick their brain. I learned a dozen things from speaking with the one and only Jesse Jarno. I cannot thank him enough for his time. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, I learned more about Cosmic Country and what that is, and I'm learning more about that every day. Uh, I discovered more of my passion for the Grateful Dead, and I was reminded of that, the fact that we are boundaryless as listeners and as humans. And if you want to see things that way, it helps a lot. Uh, thank you, Jesse, for reminding me that. So, if you want to support the podcast, that would just be such a fantastic and cosmic thing for you guys to do. Uh, please do so on Patreon. 
uh, patreon.com slash Daniel Donato. Um, follow us on Spotify. Uh, review us on Apple Podcasts. And uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, all of it's Daniel Donato. Um, the most important thing, though, is to join the Cosmic Country Club. That is the most exclusive club that there is for all things Cosmic Country. And we have a new album coming out soon, of which is um, the best that we've ever done. Um, and everyone in the Cosmic Country Club is going to hear it first, and it's, it's going to be a very fun time. We're going to do a, a listening party all together, and it's, it's going to be a good thing. So that's free. All those things are free. But what's also free is gratitude. That's important. Stay patient. Stay persistent. And stay positive. And I'll see you all down the Lost Highway.